7, and we're going to read from there. It's actually the same passage of the scripture reading today. Uh, Matthew 27, 45 to, to 50. Uh, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elisha. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put a reed, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then turn real quick with me, and keep your, keep your thumb, or try to have like a bookmark there. Uh, in Matthew 27, because we're going to flip back and forth between there and Psalm 22. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 22. And I realize my mic is off. Yes, thank you, Ed. Does that work? Okay, thank you. Psalm 22, verses just 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we consider this psalm, and as we consider your words from the cross, God, help us right now to see you as you truly are. And God, as we see you for who you truly are, Holy Spirit, would you spur our hearts to love you more, to, to think right thoughts of you, to desire rightly what you desire, and then God, give us the grace we need to walk in obedience. Would you shape us? Would you form us now, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I was thinking about what passage should we preach about um, for Easter, I kept continually coming back to this psalm. And If you've never read this psalm, the first words, you'll notice, they said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you'll notice real quick that those are the words that actually Jesus quotes on the cross. And as I thought about, like, okay, well, why was he quoting that, that psalm at that time? And what I want you to see today, and what you're going to see today, is in Matthew 27, as Jesus quotes those words from the cross, he's not just quoting those words, that he actually has the entirety of the psalm in mind. And the, the psalm starts off very bleakly, and then it ends at this magnificent place, and I want, to sh- I want to show it to you today. But as we talk about today, I want, to, I want us to think about something, and we see this in movies all the time, but think about in a movie that has a death scene. Like, think about a movie like um, uh, William Wallace at the end of that movie where he, he has this death scene, and it's this epic moment. And you know what's in every epic movie, there's, there's a death scene. We love and hate those scenes because they reveal something to us. 
We love them for their heroism and their greatness, especially when the character responds well. But we hate them when they seem unfair, especially when the character responds poorly. And you know, here's the reality I want you to see today, is that you will have a death scene. Think about this. Every single person will have a moment where they stand on the precipice of eternity, where they stand on the precipice of the end. And our secular culture genuinely does not want to know what to do with death. They don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to process it. Because in their vision of the world, everything is about progress. But a death scene means progress has ended. And so as we think about today, I want you to know something. You will die. <laughs> I know that's like, whoa, very bleak on a Sunday morning. But if we do not recognize, here's the thing, it's an assumption to this beautiful reality of resurrection. If you do not realize the truth that you will die, you will have a death scene. Whether it's today or whether it's 80 years from now, death will come to you and you will stand in a death scene. It's inevitable. And Psalm 22 is beautiful because it paints a picture of a death scene. And we, we're going to look today at Jesus' deathbed experience in this way. Charles Spurgeon, I love what he says in, in thinking about this psalm. He says, he says this, It is the photograph, this, this psalm he means, it is a photograph of our Lord's saddest hour. The record of his dying words, the container of his last tears, the memorial of his expiring joys. David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense, but as the star is concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will probably neither see nor care to see David. We should read reverently, putting off our shoes from our feet, as Moses did at the burning bush, for if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. And you're going to see why here in just a second. Another place in the New Testament in referring to Psalm 22, in Acts 2, and I'm just going to give you a reference for this. You know, Psalm 22 is mentioned over 20 times in the New Testament. They mention this psalm over and over and over and over again, and you're going to see why. But David, in counting, recounting in Acts 2, why? He says, therefore, referring to David, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left to Hades, nor his flesh to see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Peter is saying that David prophesied about the coming Messiah. He prophesied about the anointed one that would die, and he, he did so in this psalm. And as we walk through this psalm, there's three sections to it. If you're taking notes, I want you to think about these three scenes as like three different scenes in a movie. So if you're thinking about watching a movie, think about these three scenes um, as watching a movie. And the first one is this, is we're going to look at the forsaken worm. And I know you might be like, the forsaken worm? You'll, you'll see why in just a second. Psalm 22, I'll just read it again, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. Now throughout this context, as we walk through Psalm 22, I want you to be flipping back and forth between Psalm 22 and Matthew 27, and I'll show you why. Now David is talking about a time here that he's hard-pressed by suffering. He's experiencing suffering to the point of saying, why, why God have you forsaken me? And we need to recognize something, that this is not the cry, this is not the cry of someone who's having a lapse in faith. David is not backsliding here. He doesn't have a broken relationship with the Lord. This is the cry of someone who's disoriented from, to the presence of God. And David is disoriented from God's protective presence, specifically. And as we consider, as we think about our own death this morning, as we think about our own deathbed scene, every single one of us will have a moment like this. Every single one of us, even, even in our everyday life, have many deathbed scenes where we ask this question, why? Why, God, have you forsaken me? Moments where we're disoriented from the presence of God. Moments where we doubt and wonder if God has forsaken us. And what I want you to see, if you're taking notes, is the post Eden experience. This is what we're going to be looking at. The post-Eden experience. Now we have other psalms. David has other psalms that he reflects on his, his own issues with sin, like Psalm 51. But that's not what David's doing here. He is actually focusing on the results of sin. Saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 2, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am silent, and not silent. And what we see is the agony, characterized by the agony and the anguish. What we need to see is that Psalm 22 is reflecting upon our experience in a post-fall, post-Eden world. And the results, it's focusing on the results of sin. And David is not highlighting a specific sin. Rather, he's focusing on the results of sin in general. The extreme physical and mental suffering that comes as a result of sin. And here's the thing. We, as believers, need this psalm. Our Lord Jesus, in his most desperate hour, cried out the words of this psalm. And I think if he would have had enough moisture in his mouth to wet his tongue, he would have continued to say this psalm. So that's all we hear him say. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But David fills in the rest of it for us. What would Jesus have likely have said if he could have continued? This is what he would have said, verses 3 and 4. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel, Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. David reminds himself of the way that God has delivered his people in the past. So we look at the past deliverances. David is bolstering their faith, his, his faith, in the middle of a terrifying trial. 
And his first, first thoughts are, he doesn't start and say, oh, well, I know you're a nice God. I know you're really sweet. He says, you are holy. He remembers the character of God, that God is not like him. He is altogether separate. And then the second thing he remembers is that our fathers trusted you. But then he returns to his situation in verses 6 and 7, 7 and 8. He says this, he says, But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake their head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. What I want you to see here is that David is referring to himself as a worm, which means that he thinks of himself as the lowliest of low creatures. So low of a creature that it's the creature that is walked upon on the ground. If you're taking notes, it's the scorned worm. And you might be sitting there like, what does this have to do with Easter? What does this have to do with resurrection? Here's why. Jesus, in, back to Matthew 27, flip back there with me. Referring to in verse 39, actually if you go back a couple of verses prior to what we read this morning and even, even just before we started, was this is what happened. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, listen to what others did and tell me if it sounds familiar. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest, also mocking with the scribes and elders. Notice who, the, the figures there. Just real quick. The chief priests, these rulers, the religious leaders, mocking with the scribes and the elders, the ones who should have known better, saying, he saved himself. He, can't, he saved others. He can't save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. Here it is. It's like they're quoting from Psalm 22. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him if he, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And you would think these men are quoting from Psalm 22. The experience that Jesus is experiencing on the cross of Calvary is the experience that David is prophesying in Psalm 22. And it's realized and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You know, this was written 1,500 years before Jesus was on, on this earth. 1,500 years. And what David is describing, Jesus picks up as his own and says, this is being fulfilled. He experienced the forsakenness of being cut off from the Father. Not because of his own sin, not because of anything that he did, but because of everything that me and you and every Christian that calls upon his name, all of those sins, yeah, those were placed upon him. Being despised and rejected on behalf of sinners. And the beauty of the gospel is this. Since Christ has been forsaken, we shall be accepted. May we forever stand and wonder at that statement. Since the Messiah, since the anointed one of Israel stood and was rejected, on our behalf, we shall be accepted. Galatians 
3, Jesus, or Paul talking about this says this, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What he is saying, what Paul is saying is the same thing that we're seeing, that since Christ has become a curse for us, we can be accepted. On the cross, we see Jesus Christ forsaken by his friends, forsaken by his enemies, forsaken by everybody around. That we may be brought in. Tim Keller, this quote, always gets me. He says this, he says, uh... It's the next quote, I think. This is the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hope. Or Isaiah. Isaiah, even later, reflects on this in Isaiah 53, 3 through 6. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. And there you see Isaiah pick up the exact same thing the psalmist says and say, this is what it will look like. This is what it will look like when the Messiah comes. Surely, he goes on in verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. This is the anointed one. This is the Messiah. This is the one who's opened his way, our, the way to God by becoming a curse for us. So Christian, believer, brother, sister, know this. That since Christ has been forsaken, never forget that you will be accepted on his merit, on nothing else. But I wonder, if if you're maybe a non-Christian sitting here, you're maybe not a believer, I want you to consider your own deathbed experience. What comes to your mind? What will your deathbed experience be? Because as we see this psalmist say, this is what the experience is for the Christian. We're going to see what he says the experience of the Christian is. But what's the non-Christians? What defense will you have when you stand before God? Now David goes on in verses 9 of Psalm 22. So if you're Matthew 27, flip back to Psalm 22 and we'll continue in verse 9. And he reminds himself of how the Lord has dealt kindly with him personally. So Psalm 22, 9, he says, But you are he who took me out of the womb, who, tr- who made me trust while at- on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. David is saying is that the Lord is the one who he's thrust him from his mother's womb. Since he was a baby, he's trusted him. And he's saying that just like the people of Israel have trusted you, so I have trusted you since I was born. Now there's a context to this that's really, really important that we shouldn't miss. Look who's around. As we, as we see, we're going to see in verse, yeah, verses 12 through 14. Look what he says. And verses 12 through 18, actually, you can entitle them, The Dust 
to death. So David, we're going to see an experience. So now the, she, the scene's starting to shift a little bit. This is kind of the picture we've seen thus far. David is, he's, he's cast off, he's alone, he's by himself. But now the scene shifts. And we see the people who are around David. And this is what we see. And what we see is the Calvary experience. It t- makes, this psalm makes a turn at this point, and it clarifies what we have wondered. What David is describing here is not a description of illness, but of an execution. Now I want us to see, too, that the, this is the Calvary experience. People oftentimes say, well, Jesus just, they just let Jesus die. Like, Jesus just had no choice in the matter. He just went up, and they just took him, the Romans took him, and put him to death. That's not at all what's happening here. What's happening here is that the Lord is the one who is, who is allowing this to happen. He's bringing this to pass. And I want you to see suffering pictured. And now, David's about to paint some real weird pictures for us. In verses 12 through 13, he says, Many bulls encompass me. Or, I'm sorry, many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like raging and roaring, like a raging and roaring lion. And again in verse 16, if you jump down there, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Notice, David gives this picture of him by himself, cut off, rejected from all the people and all that he sees around him. If you look past the the imaginary pictures that he's painting, he's giving pictures of bulls and lions and dogs and oxen, and they're all characterized of people in strength and influence. These metaphors are meant to bring to mind powerful, sharp-fanged, razor-clawed natures of those who opposed him. And what they're doing is encircling him and encompassing him, staring and gloating over him. They're pointing us to the reality that David is completely cut off from any help. He is left to himself. And we see suffering experienced. So we've seen suffering pictured. Now we see suffering experienced. Suffering experienced. He says, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, and for my, my clothing they cast lots. Now these dogs, these strong ones, who are mocking his trust in God, are all around. Not only are they all around, you will notice, and then turn back with me to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 35. He says, Then they crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And it's in this moment whether this happened to David in this exact instance or not, what we see is that this situation is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus, hanging on the cross, 
naked, alone, no one around. And what you see is religious rulers standing all around, mocking him, dividing up his garments. Hey, hey, how much for, how much for his, his, his cloak? Tw- 20 shekels? Casting lots. Hey, you know what? No, let's, not, let's not pay for it. We'll, we'll, we'll do dice for it. Sitting down, watching over him, wondering, oh, oh, who's going to save you now, Jesus? And what we see is then the psalmist goes on. Go back to, verse, to Psalm 22. And he, now he's de- describing this death experienced. And we see suffering inflicted. This is the next point, if you're taking notes. Suffering inflicted. He says this, I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaw, for you have brought me down to the dust of death. And people have wondered, what was Jesus thinking about on the cross? What was he considering? What was, what was he thinking about? And I would argue that this is what he was thinking about. I am poured out like water. You can just picture this il- illustration of a dry ground and water being poured out to it. You know what you do when you pour out water? You don't collect it again. It's poured out into a dry earthen ground and slowly poured out and it does not return. All my bones are out of joint. He's literally having his arms and legs torn from his body, weak and destitute, dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd was just something that was like a, like a clay pottery piece that was completely dried out. After a a potter had put it on a wheel and made a pot out of it. And it's at this moment that all hope seems lost. Everything seems hopeless. And honestly, if we turn to the New Testament, it's even worse than what David describes. Because David's describing death, he doesn't actually experience this death. He's just describing an experience. But in Matthew 27, if we go on a little further... We see Jesus actually die. And in verse 59 of Matthew 27, it says, When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had honed out of a rock and rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. I don't know if you've been to a funeral recently, but what we're describing here in Matthew 27, would be like saying, not just did the person die in the death scene room, they put him into the tomb and shut the door. They put him into the grave and sealed it. And we know how the story ends. But the beauty of this psalm is this psalm now begins to paint a picture. We think that it's over. We think that it's done. David's dead. Jesus, our Lord Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, he's dead. But listen to how the psalm continues. Go back to Psalm 22. He goes on and he says, but you, O Lord. You can hear the Lord Jesus himself praying this from the cross. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. My strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. 
Save me from the, from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then David exclaims, you have answered me. And it's when we turn to the New Testament that we see his answer. We see what the answer looks like. And it's in these verses in Psalm 22 that it turns, doesn't just turn 90 degrees, it turns 180. David has just described his death experience. Jesus experienced an actual, full, realized death on the cross. When David was describing God answering his prayer, he could not have imagined the gravity of what it meant for Christ. Death in a tomb, three days. But then the psalm turns. And he says, you have answered me. And in verse 22 of Psalm 22, he says, I will tell your names to, name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Wait a second. Hold on. I thought you just said David died. Well, in this psalm, he did. <laughs> but then he says, you have heard me. You have answered my cry. And in verse 22, he says, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, and I will praise you. And in Matthew 28, just after chapter 27 that we've been just looking at, turn there real quick. And we've been reading a lot more scripture than we usually do, but I just think it's so compelling, and I want you to see it for yourself. I'm reading, for some reason, out of the ESV on this, so... Forgive me if you're in the New King James. In Matthew 28, 1 through 8. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for, the, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. The, the last time they saw him, he was being put to death. The last time they saw him, he was being put into a tomb. And here's this angel, he says, Don't be afraid. He was crucified. And in verse, uh, I don't have the verse in front of me. He says, He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, where there you will see him. And if you turn real quick to, or if I need to turn there real quick. Yes, in verse 10 of chapter 28, this is what it says. Actually, 9 and 10 of chapter 28, it says, And behold, Jesus met them. And said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see them. And it's in this psalm that we see pictured this death, this, this terrible experience of God forsaking David, then David's death experience, and now we're going to see the psalm completely turn 180. And it's delivered to hope, verses 19 through 31. Delivered to hope. And I loved what one commentator said. It was very simple, but it was this. He said, was he delivered to, before death? No. Was he delivered out of death? Yes. Was he delivered on Good Friday? No. Was he delivered on Easter Sunday? 
Yes. It was a better time and a better way because no one, no one could have taken credit for it. And then Paul, talking about something very similar in 1 Corinthians 15, says this, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. How could Paul say that? He said that Christ's death was not an accident. It was not something that happened to him, but it was something that was in accordance with Scripture. And the Scripture he's talking to about is Psalm 22. That he was buried that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And what we see David describing here in Psalm 22 is a post-resurrection experience. We see a post-resurrection experience. In verse 22, says, uh, Psalm 22, he says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. David is expressing that because God has delivered him from certain death, he will praise God's name in the midst of the congregation. And we see this in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was killed, he was crucified, he was executed, and he was raised to tell of his name to tell of his name amongst his brothers, to tell of his name amongst all those who, have, who were with him. And in friends, in light of the resurrection, this is what we as Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. And it's what we will do and we will marvel at for another 2,000 and forever after. And it's very simple. Since Christ has been raised, we must rejoice. And this psalm is just crying out. It's just crying out for us to rejoice. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. That is, God heard his anointed one when he cried. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. David is saying that since God will be the one to bring about salvation for the Messiah, for the anointed, the entire world will benefit. And the hope of the gospel is that turning from our sin, we can trust in Christ and in his finished work and actually experience new life. Listen to verses 30 and 31. Don't jump down. We don't have time to work through the rest of that psalm because it's a lot, but it, it's basically just continuing to hammer home, rejoice. It says in verse 30 of Psalm 22, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted to the Lord of the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who has been born, that he has done it. A posterity is just a generation. So a generation shall serve him. It will be recounted to the Lord to the next generation. If you're taking notes, the last part is simply that he has done it. All generations will serve him. All generations will remember and recount what God has done. 
and to a people in David's day that were still yet unborn. Which, friends, is me and you. They will tell of his righteousness. And as we see these verses, verse 31, is there something that sounds familiar? Jesus, on the cross, it says that he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then not long after, he, it says he lifted his voice. In John 19, he says, and he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So Psalm 20, 22, 31 says, he has done it. The Lord has been the one who's accomplished it. That is Yahweh, the one of old. And then here we have Jesus saying, it is finished. And brothers and sisters, we can stand and rejoice knowing that the work has been done. The way of salvation has been opened through God's victorious sufferer. Psalm 118. I almost preached Psalm 118 because it's so good. It's this psalm that tells of all that God has done. And it says this, Psalm 118. He says, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected, which is Jesus, has become the chief cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So brothers and sisters, rejoice. We have a risen Savior. We have a Savior who has conquered. We can know that when we have our death scene coming, we can rejoice. In the middle of our death scene, we can have hope and confidence because Jesus Christ has been raised. And because Jesus Christ has been raised, we have hope. We have a future and we have life in his name. And so the question is this morning, is do you know him? Have you turned from your sins and trusted him? What is your deathbed experience going to be like? As you consider your deathbed experience, as you consider the reality that you will die, think about this in the the frame of the Psalms even. See, because here's the thing, without the Lord delivering this person, this, this anointed one, this Messiah, he would have just been dead. The tomb would have been closed and that would have been the end of the story. But we have a risen Savior. And the hope of the gospel is that we will be risen with him to newness of life. So what's your deathbed experience going to be like? As we turn to to close now, I just want us to consider that simple question. What will your deathbed experience be like? Will it be one of rejoicing? Will it be one of regret? Will it be one of remorsing? Or will it be one of confidence, confident hope and expectation? So take just a minute and respond to the Lord. Um, and then we're going to take communion, actually, after, after service, uh, right before Sunday school, we're going to take communion. So just take a minute and respond to the Lord, whatever he's prompting you to respond with.
where we love to tell the story of how you died in our place and you were risen again. You are risen again. And right now, intercede for us as your people. So God, even 2,000 years being removed from this resurrection, God, may we do what your, this, your word is calling us to do, which is rejoice. Rejoice in the fact that we've been accepted. Rejoice in the fact that we have been covered by your blood. And we will be raised to newness of life with you. So God, as we consider what you're convicting us of, or if there be anything, before we take communion, God, I pray that you would show us. Make known what you have for us. Make known where we are grieving you in any way. Help us to reconcile it and to move on for your glory and for our joy in you. God, help us now to respond by faith. Lord, for this is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.